The reading today is from Revelation chapter 3, and that is found to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he, ha- he, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the the angel of the church in Laodicea, write... These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with the Father on his throne. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Well, let me have my welcome. Good morning. And um, we probably do need God's help uh, in order to uh, hear rightly what's being said in Revelation chapter 3. It's unusual. So let's pray as we begin. Our Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear that that would be your Spirit's work this morning. So we'd understand rightly what's here. And you change us so that as we've prayed already, we would desire that which you have promised, that our hearts may be fixed surely where true joys are to be found. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen. Amen. Now, um, Sydney Siders, of which there will be some here this morning, um, you probably know well Arthur Stace. He may be less familiar to others of us. Uh, Arthur Stace was a homeless man. Uh, on the streets of Sydney in the 1930s, World War I veteran. Uh, but in um, 1932, he found himself stumbling into a church in Sydney, and uh, he heard a sermon. It was a fairly blunt or clear sermon. It included these words, Eternity, eternity, I wish that I could shout that word to everyone on the streets of Sydney. You've got to meet it. Where will you spend your eternity? Well, this had an absolutely electric effect on uh, Arthur Stacey. He became a Christian. And uh, he was a fairly eccentric man. He'd been on the streets for a number of years. So he started writing with a piece of yellow chalk the word eternity on walls, on pavements. Well, he's very eccentric. It just, as soon as it rained, it washed away. But just over and over, he'd write this word at night, so no one knew who was doing it. And it started to captivate the imagination of people because, you know, everyone knew who's, who's the eternity man who keeps writing this. It's so odd, it just washes away. Who is this man? Well, eventually someone photographed him and they worked out who it was. Um, he, he turned his life around a little bit, so he, he moved into a house, he got a job, he married, he had children eventually in his life. But he carried on writing this word eternity, so it's reckoned that in 35 years he wrote it well over half a million times on the streets of Sydney. The same very stylized copper plate, copper plate handwriting um, everywhere, all over the place. So it entered into the collective consciousness. And so as many would know, so much so that uh, in, in the millennium, the year 2000, on Sydney Harbour Bridge, they had eternity in Arthur Stace's familiar copper plate handwriting. Because in his own eccentric way, he'd really pushed that in to the consciousness of the people of Sydney. Oh, what an impact it's had, I don't know. The book of Revelation is concerned with pressing into our heads eternity. For having upon our hearts eternity. Everyone will meet eternity and where we'll spend it. And so the whole book really is, is, is concerned with that. Look, at the end of history, Jesus Christ will be revealed to everyone, even if they don't recognize it now, be revealed to everyone as the Lord of all. And how you've responded to him in this life will determine where you spend eternity. So be clear on that. It's a book written to Christians, essentially telling them to keep going, keep going, because this will determine where you spend your eternity. So uh, it is that Jesus uses very vivid language throughout the book. Some of it is here. It's, it's strong language. Perhaps to our Western sensibilities, a little overstrong at times, you know, a little almost uncouth in his the strength or force of which he says one or two things. But he's trying to just knock into our heads: this matters. Eternity is at stake. 
Where will you spend eternity? And so this book is full of imagery and pictures from the Old Testament, either directly or allusions to us, stories from the Old Testament or prophecies from the Old Testament. And if we know our Old Testaments really well, this book's very straightforward. Uh, for most of us, it takes a little bit of uh, work so we know what's going on. Now, we spent the last few weeks, and this is our last week, looking at the letters. The, the book begins after this, a great vision of Jesus Christ with letters written to seven churches in the first century. We're just going to look at the last two today, Philadelphia and Laodicea. But uh, if we noticed, as Stephen pointed out, that the letters have a similar, a familiar pattern to them. They basically, all of them run like this. Where are we? So it's to the angel of the church in today, Philadelphia. These are the words of... And it's always something from chapter one, some aspect of Jesus. So these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits, whoever it may be. Then there's always something which is positive, generally. I know this about you, and that's good. Nevertheless, oops, you're doing this wrong, so there's something correction. And then it goes on. So remember, change what you're doing, or I'll come back and, and um, judge you. But he who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, and they always conclude with, to the one who overcomes. And there's something from the last two chapters of the book, chapters 21 and 22, the great vision of the future. There's always something from there uh, produced. Now, the reason I give that, maybe interest to you or not, but the striking thing about these last two churches is, well, Philadelphia, Jesus has nothing bad to say about them. They're going great. Laodicea, Jesus has nothing good to say about them. They ain't so great. Um, so we just need to bear that in mind as we work our way through them. Now, these last two, they're tested in very different ways. So as we see, Philadelphia is facing severe persecution. Laodicea has got enormous wealth. So they're being tested in different ways. Now, if I offered you a test, it's not real. But if I offered you a test, which would you prefer? Persecution, wealth. Persecution, wealth. Mm, I think most of us are going to go for wealth in that sort of setting. But... But it's a little more complicated than that. Okay, let's have a look at these two then. Philadelphia, nothing bad to say about them. Laodicea, nothing good to say about them. But let's work through them in terms. So first then, Philadelphia. Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia, I know your patient endurance. I know your patient endurance. Now, if you know your history well, at the, um, at the summer of AD 64, Rome burned. For six days and seven nights, the city of Rome burned. And about 75% of the city was destroyed, so historians say. And uh, Nero was possibly to blame, who can tell. But certainly he persecuted, in the wake of it, Christians. That was the group that he, he singled out and said, they're to blame. And so from that point onwards, Christianity, for a number of years, severely persecuted. And it's to that setting that this letter is uh, written. So Tacitus, the, um, the Roman historian, describes Nero's treatment of Christians at this time. In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport. They were covered with the hides of wild beasts and torn to death by dogs. They were nailed to crosses or set fire to. And when the day had ended, they were burned to serve as candles for the evening lights. So when there's person, that is extreme persecution that's taking place. That was in Rome, in the center, but it spread out. Philadelphia, obviously a Roman city. And um, the Christians there are experiencing tough times. 
Now, up until this point, they've slightly been shielded because um, they, Christianity was initially viewed as just a sect of Judaism. And Judaism was okay. The Jews paid a tax to the Roman Empire. So it was the one legal non-Roman religion there was, Judaism. But all this starts taking place, and the, the situation, according to all the historians, is uh, the synagogues were starting to say, those Christians, they're Christians over there. Arrest them. They're not part of us. They're the ones that burned Rome. Do them. So you get the situation where synagogues are deliberately handing over the Christians with the full knowledge that death ensues. Which is why I think you get these references to a synagogue of Satan. It's quite a strong language. But I guess in perversely a similar scenario to the Holocaust. People are just, you can arrest them. They're the outsiders. Take them away so we'll be safe. That's the backdrop to what's going on in Philadelphia. But Jesus says essentially two things to them. Uh, I know your patient endurance, that's the headline, but two things beyond that. First then, he declares, I'll protect you, verses 7 to 10. I'll protect you. So verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this, these are the words of him who is holy and true, just like you're striving to be in Philadelphia. Good for you. And then you get this longer idea of Jesus being a key holder. He is the one who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you've little strength. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. He's a doorkeeper. That's the idea. Jesus presents himself as a doorman with irresistible power. Now, I don't know if you've ever met Jim. Jim is uh, the doorman, or one of the doormen, at the Athenium Hotel, so bottom of Down Street, um, Piccadilly. He's one of the doormen. He's the obvious one. He's about seven foot tall, uh, with big sideburns and an enormous smile. Very friendly. If you ever, I mean, he may be bored, which is why he wants to chat. But uh, very friendly. He'll always stop and chat. He's a delightful, gentle giant. If you see him playing with the children of the guests, he's, he's got a great sense of humor. He's like the BFG, I always think. You know, he's, an, he's just very tall and loves children, doesn't eat them. The, um, uh, he's a really lovely, gentle giant. Now, if Jim is holding open the door, imagine Jim's holding open a door, but a toddler tries to shut it. A two-year-old sort of comes up and leans on it. And Jim is enormous. He is enormous. Uh, an army of toddlers decide they're going to storm the gates of the Athenium and close the door. But Jim is enormous, and he holds the door open, and an army of toddlers has got no hope against him. And that is the picture here. Jesus says to the church, I'm holding the door open for you. It doesn't matter who comes. The armies of the world could come against me. I'm holding it open. They are like crawling toddlers sucking on their dummies. They've got no chance against me. I'm holding this door open. Now, of course, here it's not a door to a hotel. It's a door to, well, it's the door into God's presence. Uh, verse 7, it's the key of David. I mean, just a picture that from the Old Testament, David is the great king. To hold the key of David means you're part of God's people. Jesus, I'm holding the door open to be with God into his presence. Or as verse 12 puts it, I'm holding this door open to the temple of God. You can go into God's presence. I'm holding this door open so your relationship with God cannot be shut off, says Jesus. That's the picture. He's all-powerful. 
But see, he says to this church, which is, well, they're dying. He says to this church in verse 8, I know you have little strength. I know what's going on. I know you have little strength, that you've kept my word and not denied my name. I know you're small in number. I know you have little clout in society. I know a number of you have seen your relatives killed. I know. I know. I do know. Oh, look, they're with me. And I'm guaranteeing that you'll be with me as well. I know what you're going through. You are weak, but I am strong. You've kept my word and not denied my name. Look, the watching world may not think much of you, but I think you're magnificent. Keep going. Uh, verse 9, there's this concept that there'll, there'll be a great reversal. I'll make those of the synagogue, synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but they're liars. I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I loved you. Well, that doesn't sound very nice. Apart from that verb, fall down at your feet, that is voluntary word. That's a sort of voluntary worship. It comes up 35 times, this concept in the book of Isaiah. Enemies falling at your feet because it's by choice. It's not coercion in this case. He's saying, look, others will see. But the main point in verse 9, the church will be raised up to a position of great honor. Verse 10, there's going to be a trial to come, more trial. It's not as if they're not suffering at the moment, but Jesus says, I'll keep you from the hour of trial. What does that mean? I mean, they're dying. It just means I'll protect you. When your faith is under trial, when you're thinking to yourself, I can't can't do this anymore. I can't keep going as a Christian. Not when my life's on the line. I'll protect you, he says. I will protect you in those scenarios. Trials will come. You're weak. I'm strong. So we're moving this week. There was a, a big conference in London this week of evangelical Anglicans from around the world. So archbishops and uh, bishops from about 400 different countries, I think, uh, all, um, all gathered uh, for a conference. I went along just for the very last bit of it. But you heard these extraordinary testimonies So an archbishop, Archbishop Emmanuel from Nigeria, talking of the churches that have been firebombed in the first six months of this year, just before Christmas in the last six months, and the believers he knows that have died. And now that are in the cities, the police place two armed guards in front of every church that meets on a Sunday just to protect them. Very moving. When you hear accounts of Christians meeting in underground churches in Iran. And how you know, a, couple's home was, <laughs> a couple's home was invaded, and they dug out the foundations because they heard there was a Christian church meeting underground in the house, so they thought it was literally underground. But um, deeply moving of the church in Afghanistan and how it's flourishing. Wonderfully moving stories of, amidst great persecution. And Jesus says, look, you're weak, but I'm strong. I'll protect your faith. What's it sobering for us in the UK who for 450 years haven't known anything like that? Nothing like that. It's been a long time since a Christian's been set on fire in the UK, although it did happen, of course, a few centuries ago. So a sense of perspective, of course, if you're here today. But look, if you're having a hard time for being a Christian, whatever way that may be, someone snubs you at work, you know, there's family troubles, whatever it may be, Jesus says, look, I know, I know. You're weak, but I'm strong. I'm holding the door open. Just keep going. 
I think it's magnificent that you're keeping going. I know. What is our task? Well, 11 to 13, the task is simple. Hold on to the crown. Hold on to the crown. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have. Heaven is yours, says Jesus. It's a crown you're holding on to. Just don't let go of it. Keep going. Him who overcomes, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. What? What is that? You'll be a pillar in the temple. In the Old Testament, the temple is where God dwells representatively. Now, the priests would come in and they'd go out. But the pillars were always there. I mean, you and I, we may spend an hour, two, three, four, I don't know how many hours in this building a week. The pillars, I mean, they're a bit more consistent than you and me. They never leave, which is good. They're always here. And Jesus is his point. Look, just keep going and I'll make you a pillar in my, I mean, it's not an attractive image in one sense, but he's saying you'll always be with me. You'll never go in and out anymore. You'll always be with me. You'll be a pillar in the temple of my God. You'll get a name. In fact, you'll get three names. I write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from my God. I'll write on him my new name. So you'll get God's city and Jesus written on you. I mean, the only point is here, a new name. Your old name, if you're in Philadelphia, is your suffering and you're being persecuted. The new name is all is well, glorious, never leave. That's his point. So keep going. These are funny images, aren't they? You'll be a pillar of permanence. You'll have a new name of glory. What would that really be like? I mean, they're funny pictures or hints. But there's a sense in which that's all we ever get, biblically. The story is told of a man who went to see his Christian doctor. And the doctor says to him, you're dying. You have three months tops before, before you die. And the man says, Doctor, can you tell me something about where I'm going? Just encourage me. I'm a Christian like you. Just encourage me. Where am I going? Tell me what it's going to be like. And the doctor, what do I say? And then he heard this sort of scratching at his door outside. He thought, oh, my dog. And then it came to him. He said, you hear that noise, that scratching? That's my dog. He's scratching at the door. He's meant to be downstairs in his basket. He's come up the stairs. He's scratching at the door. He, he doesn't know what's going on in this room. All he knows is that his master's here and that he wants to be with him and it's lovely being with his master. He doesn't know the details. He said, it's a bit like that, the Christian life, isn't it? We'll go to be with him. It'll be wonderful. We don't know the details. We don't need to. We just know that life with the master is great. Hold on. Philadelphia, I know. I know your patient endurance. Hold on. Keep going. I have nothing bad to say about you. I think what you're doing is great. Keep going. That's Philadelphia. By contrast, there's Laodicea. So if he says, Philadelphia, I know your patient endurance, uh, by contrast, Laodicea, in verse 14 to the end of the chapter, I hate your self-reliance, says Jesus. I hate your self-reliance. Now, what's the backdrop here? Laodicea, um, you, you mentioned in the church of, uh, sorry, mentioned the letter to uh, Colossians, uh, planted by Epaphras, something like 55 AD, a very wealthy city indeed. Very wealthy. 
built on banking, the wool trade. It was well known for its excellent eye hospital uh, in the first century. If you had a problem with your eyes, you'd go to Laodicea. They produced all sorts of ointments. and Anyway, that was what it was known for in the first century. Enormously wealthy city. It was devastated by an earthquake in uh, AD 60. But it tells you something about the sort of citizens they were. They took no money from Rome, asked for no help to rebuild their city. They were determined to do it all themselves. So that's Laodicea. Very wealthy. We don't need help. Self-reliant. And that culture has affected the church of Laodicea. And as I say, the striking thing about it is that Jesus has nothing positive to say. Let's break it down a little bit. So uh, two things. Uh, First, you don't think you need me. Verses 14 to 17. That's the accusation. You don't think you need me. So verse 14 to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, that's odd. <laughs> now, Jesus isn't here referring to a sort of spiritual th- enthusiasm, a thermometer of enthusiasm, because obviously it is better to be a Christian who's firing at 50% than not one at all. I hope you know that biblically, that is true. What is wrong with being lukewarm? It's just a much more basic illustration that Jesus is using. Lukewarm is rarely of any use. So um, if you remember summer, we had it back in March. Do you remember that? The, uh, but if you remember summer, or you know, a, a really hot summer, it's a very hot summer's day, and uh, you go for a walk, and you're sweaty, or you play some tennis outside, whatever it is, and you're sweaty, and you come inside, and what you want is a cold drink. You want to go to the fridge and get a cold drink. And if you go to the tap, and uh, it's just tepid water, what do you do? You just run the tap. You want cold water. You don't want tepid water. Tepid water is horrible. When you're really hot and sweaty, you want cold water. Well, this week, torrential rain, you think, oh, no, oh, it's come out, the sun's come out. Yeah, but you've been tricked, haven't you? Because the sun only comes out for 20 minutes at the moment. But you go out, you go out, you leave your office or whatever it is, you leave your house, and you go out, you know, oh, I don't need an umbrella now, the sun's out, fool. Um, and so at that point, you know, down it all comes again, torrential, you're soaked, you're cold, and you come inside, and someone says, oh, do you like a, whatever it is, cup of tea? Uh, oh, yeah, a nice warm one. And they give you one, and it's been sat on the side for an hour, and it's vaguely lukewarm. That just doesn't do it. It's tepid. It's lukewarm. It's rubbish. So Jesus says to this church, you're useless. You're useless. Hot or cold, one or the other. But this is hopeless. You don't want that. You are good for nothing. You repulse me. You make me... Oh, strong, isn't it? You make me vomit. I want to spit you out. Very strong. Now, what is the problem? Well, verse 17. You, I mean, deep sarcasm here. Verse 17. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. Do you see the problem? They say, well, we're fine. We've got everything we need. I've got money. I've got possessions. I can protect myself. I've got everything. I'm fine. I don't need Jesus. Not really. Now, this is a church, so they're not sort of expressing it vocally. 
No one comes to church on a Sunday and says, why are you here? Well, because I don't need Jesus. No one really said, that would be odd. Uh, so they're not expressing this out loud, but this is what's going on in their hearts. I don't, I don't need Jesus, really. So here's a very wealthy city built upon um, banking, wool trade, excellent eye hospital. They say, we don't need Jesus. Now, let's not be, it's not, all, not too difficult, is it? We live in a city built upon, well, wool was one element, but trade, banking, I could stretch it and say, we do have an eye hospital, but um, that would be stretching it. Very easy to live in London and functionally live independently of God. I I mean, if you're here this morning, you're not going to say that, of course. But actually, day to day, how you live, a great dependence upon God. For us, we need to be on our guard. We can become complacent. Satisfied, satisfied with our wealth, but devoid of any spiritual depth. Very easy. Philadelphia, persecuted. You're going great because you trust in me. Laodicea, you're very wealthy. Life is comfortable. I hate you. It's a real warning. (laughs) Very striking. Jesus says, you need me. Depend upon me. How do do you judge that? Am I depending upon him? I mean, I'm I'm a Christian, and I call myself a Christian, and I do trust in Jesus' death in my place, but am I functionally leaning upon him, depending upon him? No, I don't know. You've got to answer that for yourself. One practical test, of course, is always prayer. Prayer is the great mark of dependence. Because practically, to spend time praying to God, you're not doing anything to advance your own case you're saying, God, I need your help. I'm going to stop for half an hour that I could be productively working and instead trust that it's more useful to spend half an hour praying to you. It's a very practical test of whether we depend upon God. It's not it's the best one I know, I think. That's true personally. Forgive me for a moment. If you're visiting, this may be of interest, it may not. But for those who are regulars, the church family, I am... I'm a little anxious that come prayer meetings, you probably get two-thirds of the evening congregation will come and gather and pray on Wednesday night. And about, I don't know, 15% of this congregation, 20 maybe, on a good night. Something, something's a bit wrong there, I'd suggest. There's a lack of dependence there. Of course, you know, all sorts of things you can say. uh, um, But I pray on my own, so I don't need to pray with other people. Really? I mean, that's an odd Christian life. You just live it on your own. Look, life is really busy. It's once a month. One evening a month we commit to pray. It's complicated with arrangements. We'd have to get a babysitter. Yep. Manage for other things. And there are all sorts of excuses we could produce. But verse 17, it's unsettling. I mean, we don't need you. We could easily say that as a church. Church is fine. You could, we could, you could sit here this morning and think, well, look, there's a prayer meeting on Wednesday, but church is fine. It doesn't need me to come and pray. And Jesus would say, look, I hate that attitude. I hate that. That independent-mindedness. Too comfortable. Too complacent. 
too self-reliant. Don't like that. You don't think you need me, says Jesus. But what you need to do, 18 to 20, is buy riches from me. Which is not a thing to do, buy money, but buy riches from him. So the key in one says, why would we do this? We need to understand that spiritually our condition is the second half of verse 17. Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. Spiritually speaking, that's true. We may have extraordinary material wealth, but spiritually, you, me, everyone in the globe, without exception, is in this condition, a spiritual beggar. The child you see on the streets when you go to the two-thirds world with deformed legs, and you think, gosh, they've got it rough. That's us, spiritually. That's you and me. And so metaphorically, we're to buy what we need from Jesus. I mean, there are three pictures. They're kind of making the same point. We need to buy from him righteousness. Hold on, we need to explain that. But we need to receive from him a status of perfection that we lack. Naturally, we're sinful. Jesus is righteous on the cross. There's just an exchange that takes place. He takes our sin. We get his righteousness if we trust in him. And Jesus says, yeah, you need to do that. So you need to get from me, there are three little metaphors to make the point. Gold is the first one. You need to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Well, again, if you have your ears open, that's Malachi 3 in the Old Testament, where gold refined in the fire is a picture for righteousness that God gives. You need white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. Throughout the book of Revelation, people are naked. (laughs) If you're naked, you're exposed. Not to the elements, that's unpleasant, but you're naked, you're exposed to God's judgment. Again, you need to be clothed in righteousness. Or you need salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. I think he's playing with the eye hospital thing. You need to come to me, says Jesus. Only I can give you these things. Only I can give you righteousness, which is mine, instead of sin, which is yours. Only I can give you that. You need to come to me. There are probably some here who have never bought that from Jesus, never received a gift of righteousness, and who still remain spiritually poor, wretched, blind. Jesus says, buy righteousness. It's not literally, there's nothing you can spend it. It's just a metaphor, a picture. You don't need money for this. You just need to humbly recognize Jesus. I I have no relationship with God spiritually. Only you can give me that. It's a gift. You need to do that if you've never done that. But for those of us who are Christians, let's not be lukewarm. It's quite easy, you know, you become a Christian, it's exciting, and you think, oh, that's wonderful. But as you go on, and as you become more, as you get older in life, and the responsibilities, to rely more and more on your own resources and less and less upon God is not hard to do. And Jesus, I hate that. I hate that. It makes me want to spit you out. I don't like that. But it is to the Christians that Jesus says, verses 19 and 20, look, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. I'm giving you this strong language, and it is shocking, I know, but I'm telling you because I don't want that to happen. I do want an intimacy of relationship with you. I want you to depend upon me. It's good for you. Lean upon me. 
And so, verse 20, it's words for Christians here in verse 20. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him. And he with me, feast with me, says Jesus. Again, it's a picture from the last two chapters of the book dragged back here. The, the, The most dominant picture the Bible gives us of heaven is a feast. Feast with me, says Jesus. That's what I want. Keep going. Have eternity clearly in your mind. And lean upon me, not upon your own resources. Come back to me. Lean upon me, not your own strength. I happened to read something this week about from Alan Redpath. He was a minister, um, a Scottish minister, uh, um, Charlotte Chapel in Edinburgh, Moody Church in Chicago, or whatever the ptosis he spent his time. Uh, as a preacher, he um, was reading some stuff of his. He tells the story that uh, one day he was on a train coming from Edinburgh down to London on the train, and the old-style train where you get a lot of noise, over and over again. And uh, he was a young man at the time, and he said, "You know, I just as I was listening to this, all I could hear the train track saying. Obviously, they weren't literally. All I could hear in my mind was, saved soul, wasted life. Saved soul, wasted life." Saved soul, wasted life, going round and round. He said, I resolved at that moment I wouldn't be that. I wouldn't just be a Christian who trusts Jesus is going to heaven, but really the way they live their life, just a waste, just a waste. No trust in him functionally, just self-reliant, doing their own thing. I wasn't going to be that sort of Christian. I was going to lean on him, trust him, depend upon him, give myself for him. Laodicea, I hate your self-reliance. So two churches then, very different, very different. Philadelphia under persecution, great. You're going great. Laodicea, prosperous and wealthy. You're in danger. You are in danger. So two tests, persecution, prosperity. Which do you want? Well, you know, wealth is nicer, yeah, but it's more dangerous, according to these letters. It's more dangerous, so watch out. Let me finish with this. Some would have heard this before, but um, uh, or may know this. Uh, John Pierpoint Morgan, who founded the successful Merchant Bank at the end of the 19th century, he was the richest man of his day. See, the Sunday Times rich list comes out today, and for the eighth year in a row, Lakshmi Mattel is the richest man in the UK. John J.P. Morgan was the richest man. Uh, he headed the rich list in the day at the day, and um, uh, great philanthropist. He sort of led the age of philanthropy. Uh, Met Museum in New York. A good slab of the museum is just his personal collection, which uh, he gave upon his death. I mean, enormously wealthy, fabulously wealthy. Very successful man. Hear the opening words of his will. So as his children gathered to hear the will read, there's all sorts of money to be left, of course, you know, it would have been quite exciting. All sorts of hangers-on would have been there to hear the will. Hear the opening words. I commit my soul into the hands of my saviour in full confidence that having received it, and washed it with his most precious blood, he will present me faultless before the throne of my heavenly Father. And I entreat my children to maintain and defend at any hazard, any cost of personal sacrifice, the blessed doctrine of the complete atonement for sin through the blood of Jesus Christ once offered and through that alone. Quite an opening statement, isn't it? Have you written your will? Probably not that good. So what is he saying there? He's saying, okay, I made lots of money, etc., etc. 
I trust that Jesus will put me before the... I trust in Jesus, and that'll get me to heaven. Look, the first thing I want you to know now I'm dead is, I was looking to eternity. That's the most important thing. And can I say to you, my children, have eternity in mind for yourselves. Fight for the truth of the gospel. Defend at any hazard, at any personal cost. Don't let that go. Because that's a message of eternity, of salvation for eternity that all people need to hear. A clear view of eternity. So some of Jesus' words say, yeah, they're shocking. But there in J.B. Morgan is a man who was rich. He acquired, acquired enormous wealth. But he was trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, depending upon him. And in eternity scheme, that's the thing that matters above all else. Let's pray together. Our loving Father, two churches, two different situations, and uh, you know our lives personally as individuals and the, the particular challenges that we face, whether we begin at a hard time by some, whether uh, independence-mindedness, self-reliance is a presenting issue for us, you know. So Father, please, again, would your Spirit give us ears to hear what we need to hear in order that we have a clear view of eternity and so live for you this day.